Thank you, CC, for that reminder. Um, we are talking about sacred rhythms, and and and, and here is um, here's what's at stake in the words of Henry Nouwen. You guys listen. Without solitude, it is almost impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside time to be with God and to listen to God. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not take time to be with God and to listen to God. And I want to make sure, church family, I want to make sure that we all understand, we understand that what we're talking about, please get this, what we're talking about is not some other things on top of the things that we sort of do in the Christian life. What we're talking about, what we're talking about is something that God wove into the very fabric of how we are to relate to him and to the world. When we're talking about solitude and silence and stillness and Sabbath, please listen. These aren't sort of, you know, I do that with fasting and worship and giving and serving. What we're talking about, these disciplines, these practices, what we're talking about are things. Listen, when God created us and when God saves us, he says, these things are integral and critical to how you relate to me and how you relate to the world. They are essential. They are foundational to how we live. That's why we're saying we need to arrange our entire lives and not I do these things and then on top of arranging our entire lives around these things. And that's why, thank you, Cece, this church, listen, this is like major spiritual warfare. This is not going to come naturally or easily for you. If you are distracted right now, if you are distracted when you're trying to do this thing, please understand, it's not just because you can't sit still. There is massive spiritual warfare around these things because there's nothing that the enemy would like than for you to neglect these things that are at the foundation of how God says, this is how you relate to me and the world. Someone needs to tell you that there are such things as silence, solitude, and stillness. Someone needs to tell you that it's okay to do them, and someone needs to show you how to do it and what happens when you do. Especially for many of us who grew up in churches where this was a non-issue, where we just didn't talk about them. A quick definition, solitude is the practice of being absent from people and things in order to attend to God, and silence is the practice of quieting every inner and outer voice to attend to God. I've been a Christian for about 30 years and a professional Christian, for those of you wondering what is that, that's a pastor, for 25. And let me just tell you, this has been by far the most transformative and the most difficult thing I've ever done in my life. I know a lot about the Bible. I have enough head knowledge to fill me for a lifetime, not transformative. I'm also very familiar with what's called quiet time. Anybody familiar with quiet time? For those of you that are not Christian, that's not the same thing as like time out, okay? Quiet time is something that was instilled in me, and I'm grateful for it as a college student, high school college student in the church background, where you set aside 15, 20 minutes a day to read the scriptures and to pray. Quiet times were an amazing gift for me, and I encourage everyone to do it. Here's the challenge, though. The challenge is if you do quiet time for 15 minutes, then you don't give God another thought for the rest of the 23 hours and 45 minutes, then you're missing the point of quiet time. Do you realize all these practices are designed to do one thing? Please listen. That's not to check off a list, I did that, or to feel good about the fact that I spent time with God. All these practices were intended for one thing, one thing only, and that is so that you and I would live in constant awareness of God's presence. And then respond when the Spirit prompts us to respond. 
Christian life is very simple and yet demanding. You and I are to live in constant awareness of God's activity and respond to it. I remember like it was yesterday, the catalytic moment that set me off on this journey. This was what led to three sabbaticals. Actually, I shouldn't laugh at that. That's not funny. Um, I was giving my kids a bath. They were a little smaller then. And I remember like it was yesterday. I was getting irritated because they were having fun and taking too long. Oh, some of you, okay, you laugh. You could relate, okay? And here I was, here I was, listen, I was, I was too tired, too preoccupied, too exhausted to enjoy the gift that was life. And I sensed the voice of God saying this to me. You might be familiar with it. Slow down. Your life is too loud. Slow down. Your life is too full. Your soul. Your soul. Your soul. Anybody familiar with that voice? Say yes if you are. Yeah, yeah, of course you are. Of course I am. One of the most frequent questions I get asked because what I was suffering from was hurry sickness. Is Peter, what's the difference between being busy and being hurried? Let me tell you what the difference is, okay? First of all, being busy is a full schedule. Hurry is always preoccupied. Being busy is many activities. Being hurry is unable to be fully present. This is a no-brainer, but do you realize love and hurry are incompatible? Can you love in a hurry? Can you love on the run? Loving someone well takes what? Time. And time is what hurry people don't have. You know what I've never heard? I've never heard someone go, Pastor Peter, we drifted into intimacy. I've never heard that. Maybe you have. Maybe you drifted into intimacy before you know, like, oh my gosh, we just drifted into intimacy. No, people drift what? Apart. It takes no energy to drift apart, but it takes intentionality for intimacy. How in the world can you be intimate with your heavenly father unless you slow down and have Time. Busy is an outward condition of the calendar. Hurry is an inner condition of the soul. Hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. Busy is physically demanding. Hurry is spiritually draining. Busy reminds me I need God. Hurry causes me to be unavailable to God. So let me ask you today, are you busy or are you hurried? Can I make a confession? I love hurry. I'm drawn to hurry. Do you know why? <laughs> Can't you tell? I talk really fast. <laughs> Do you know why I'm drawn to hurry? Because it enables me to mask what I'm really feeling inside. Do you know how many people I see? If I just keep myself busy, keep myself occupied, keep myself going, I don't have to think about the fact that, oh, I've got some anger and resentment there. I don't have to think about the fact that, oh, oh, okay, I've got relationships that are not right, but I don't really want to deal with that. Oh, I don't have to think about the fact that I did that two years ago, I did that six months ago, and I have regrets and shame and guilt. If I could just keep going and not stand still, 
I don't have to have these things come up to the surface where I might actually have to deal with them. But here's the thing. If you're not dealing with these things in a healthy way, you will eventually leak. And the people that you affect are the people that you love the most. The other thing, another reason why I'm drawn to hurry is because it makes me feel important. Why? Because we live in a performance-addicted culture. So, of course, hurrying, where I get a lot of stuff done, makes me feel good about myself. Can I just say something? Your worth is not the same thing as your usefulness. Can I get an amen? I'm going to say that one more time. Your worth is not the same thing as your usefulness. I know you've been told that lie by our culture. So moms who have kids for the first time struggle because you don't feel useful. You don't feel worthy. Dads who lose jobs don't feel worthy because I'm not useful. Your worth is not the same thing as your usefulness. Thank God for the gospel that tells me that my worth is found in what Christ has done and not what I do. Can I get an amen? Amen. Stop believing the lie that your worth is the same thing as your usefulness. There's nothing in our culture that supports what we're talking about. No wonder it's hard for you and I to engage this, and yet it is so critical for our souls. There's so much that's at stake. As I began this journey, as you know, and we're going to be parked in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19. As I began this journey, I told you last week that I, that there's a difference between reading a story and living a story. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever read a story in the Bible and you go, I'm living that. Well, that was me. Elijah's story became the anchor and foundation because when I began this journey, my church upbringing didn't teach me about these things. So I needed someone not just to teach me, but show me what this is like, what happens when I do it, and the fact that it's okay. And Elijah came to mind. Now, here's the thing about Elijah. How many of us grew up? Up, picturing these men and women in the Bible as superheroes. Anybody? But they were far from that, weren't they? Elijah, Elijah was not more spiritual, not more gifted than you and I. Here's what James says, literally. James 5 says, Elijah was a human being, just as us. God didn't use Elijah because he was somehow more, more spiritual. As a matter of fact, we'll see in a couple weeks, he was flawed, deeply flawed. But Elijah had a rhythm to his life, sacred rhythm, solitude, Silence, stillness. Then ministry. Solitude, silence, stillness. Then ministry. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to park ourselves. And by the way, if those of you sitting here going, didn't you preach on this like three years ago? I did. I did. And, 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 and you still don't get it. And I still don't get it. So I'm going to keep preaching it until you get it. And I get it. Can I get an amen? Remember what I said last week or two weeks ago? We are educated beyond our obedience. James 5, don't just listen to the word, do what it says. So I will continue to preach on this until you actually do it and I actually do it. Can I get an amen? Yeah, and also the more I look into scriptures, the more insight I get. It's a beautiful thing about the Bible. 1 Kings 17 is where we are. Verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishab and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Who is Ahab? Do you remember? How would you like this on your tombstone? First Kings chapter 16. Here's who Ahab is. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And there were some evil kings in Israel. And he was the worst of them all. Why? Ahab married Jezebel. Who is Jezebel? Jezebel is the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon. It was one of these political alliance marriages. Problem is, Jezebel was a devotee of Baal, the fertility god of Tyre and Sidon. And so what she does when she marries Ahab is she convinces Ahab to make worship of Baal the national religion, state-sponsored, of Israel. Never happened before. So there are seminaries being set up, and there are priests and priestesses being educated. It was an incredibly lonely time to be a follower of God. I, <clears throat> I wonder, can anybody relate to what it's like to be alone? Uh, what it feels like to be lonely as a follower of God. It's lonely to be a follower of God if you're the only Christian in your family. 
It all be lonely to be a follower of God if you're the only Christian at work. I don't know who this is for, but I sense this this week, so I'm going to say this to you. If you are the only Christian at work or you don't have much support system, can I remind you that you have a kingdom assignment there from God? Can I also remind you that if God has given you that kingdom assignment, God has also given you the resources to fulfill that kingdom assignment? Daniel Espada, can I get an amen? Mr. Alderman, that is Mr. Alderman, Daniel Espada. That city hall, I'm not even going to say what I'm going to say, what I'm thinking. But Daniel, I'm going to tell you, you have a kingdom assignment there. And God doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. Your ministry there as an alderman, God has given you what you need. Here's another thing I want to remind you, Daniel. You have an opportunity to do something that I'll never do. You know what it is? I will never get a, I, I hope I could, but I will never get to preach a sermon in City Hall. Your life will be a sermon to the people you interact with every day. Who needs to be reminded that this week? Who needs to be reminded this week that you are not there by accident and that you have a kingdom assignment there from God? Amen? And keep going. What is, what, is, what is happening here? What is happening here when, 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 when Elijah says, this is what's going to happen. There will neither be dew, no rain in the, uh, except at my word. Elijah is essentially saying to Ahab, Ahab, you have it completely, completely wrong. You think that Baal is the God of all gods. And he's saying, my God, God of Abraham, Jacob, and Israel, is the true God. You think Baal, the fertility God, controls the weather, thereby controlling the livestock and produce. He says, our God is the creator God of all creation. And just to show you that our God is the one true God, there will neither be new rain nor dew until God says so. And so he goes on. Then, verse 2, the word of the Lord, a circle line under highlight, then, then, you got to pay attention when the Bible says then and therefore and but, these words actually matter. Then the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide yourself. The word hide in Hebrew literally has a sense of conceal or absent yourself in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. Here's a map. Can, I, can, can you show up the map, please? Okay, so there, there's Samaria. There's where, there's where uh, uh, Eli, Elijah uh, prophetically ministers powerfully. And then you have about 25, 30 miles away. That's literally the desert. God, Elijah ministers. And before he knows it, God goes, now I need you to stillness, silence, solitude. Please understand the context. The nation of Israel is falling apart politically, spiritually. Do you understand that? It's falling apart spiritually. Elijah could have easily said what? I don't have time for solitude, silence, and stillness. There is too much to do to get away. And oh, by the way, a close cousin of that, can I just say, for those of us that are like, I don't have time, a close cousin of that goes something like this. If I don't do it, then what? Then nobody else. See, we don't actually say that out loud because when we do, it's embarrassing, but we think it. In the first Kings 19, Elijah actually says to God, there is no prophet. I'm the only one left. What does God say? There are what? There's 7,000 others. And I told you guys last week, do you know how my perspective would change if God says, there are thousands of kingdom ambassadors just like you in the city of Chicago, so you could chill out, Peter. If you're ever tempted to believe the lie, like I do oftentimes, that if not me, then who? Remember that God is an army of kingdom ambassadors in your school, in your neighborhood, in your workplaces that have not bowed their knees to an idol. And God is at work through them. You can take a break. Can I get an amen? If you're tempted to think, I don't have time for this, the truth is you don't have time not to be away for silence and solitude. Verse 3, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had, tried to, had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I love the fact that God provides Elijah with meat. Can I get an Amen. 
carnivores among us. There will be meat in heaven, lots and lots of meat. I imagine heaven like Texas to Brazil. That's how I imagine, that's how I'm imagining heaven to be, all the meat you could eat. You know what I noticed this week? I noticed this week that God used ravens to deliver food to Elijah. Do you know why? Do you know what Jesus said thousands, uh, hundreds of years later? Here's what Jesus said. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap. They have no store or barn, but God feeds them. How much more value are you than they? God has such a sense of humor. God goes, these birds that I take care of, and you're way more valuable than these birds, Elijah. I'm going to use these ravens to remind you that what? I am taking care of you. Do you notice in the morning, in the evening? In other words, God takes care of Elijah what? Daily, not weekly. He takes care of him daily. And we're reminded all of a sudden, you guys, of another time when God taught the people of Israel the same lesson he's trying to teach them. The people of Israel, as they're on their way to the promised land, God sends them what? Heavenly manna. And God gives them instructions. Don't collect these. Don't hoard it. Don't keep more than you need. Every single day I will provide. If you keep more than you need, it will what? Rot. What was God teaching them? What is God teaching you and me? God says, I have got your needs taken care of daily, moment by moment. You're good. You're good. To remind Elijah that it's not him who takes care of his needs, but it is his heavenly father who takes care of his needs. Every perfect gift is from what? Above. The illusion that we live with, that we have to make ends meet, that we have to make things happen. God says, I am the one that provides for you. Is that good news? Hallelujah, somebody says. Do you know why I said this last week? God doesn't provide for a week worth of time because if God provided for a week's worth of time, you wouldn't seek God for a week. And he cares more about your relationship with him than what he does for you. Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. I'm here, why are you talking about this? Do you know why I'm talking? This has everything to do with stillness, silence, solitude. What do I mean? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? if I don't trust that he will take care of my needs, well, then, of course, I'm going to have to take care of my needs. If I don't trust that God is wise, then, of course, I'm going to be up all night trying to figure out every scenario. If I don't trust that God has good intentions for me, then, of course, I will never let my future destiny unfold without my participation. If I don't trust God, how in the world do I take a step back and say, you got this, right, God? You got this, right, God? It's about trust. It's about trust. The reason why you can't take Sabbath and rest, you don't trust him. The reason why you feel like you have to make it happen is you don't trust him. The reason why you feel like I feel like we're indispensable is because we don't trust him. The reason why the thought of letting our destiny unfold without our participation scares us, we don't trust him. The reason why solitude, still silence gives us anxiety is because we don't what? Trust him. Psalm 46.10, be still. This is on my, this is on a, what am I trying to say? This is on a wooden thing hanging in my study. That's what I meant to say. This was my memory verse. This was my meditation verse. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. I've been meditating this for one year and God continues to speak through it. One of the ways he's speaking is be still and know that I am God, not you. Be still and know he is God, not you. If you think you're in charge of outcomes, you think be still and know I'm God. If you think you can control, manage things, be still and know, you think you're God. God says be still and know that what? He is God. Here's the thing though, you will never come to know that he is God unless you are what? You'll never know that he is God, not you, unless you can be still. 
Next passage. This is so powerful for me. Exodus 14, 13. Do not be afraid. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to what? Be still. Being still might be the difference between you fighting for God and God fighting for you. Can you say it differently? Okay, I'll say it differently. I think God accomplishes more when I'm still and trust him than when I'm active and to do his bidding. Maybe what God is calling you and me to do is to say, trust me and be still and I'll fight for you. Don't try to figure stuff out. Don't try to solve everything. Don't try to manage. Be still, be still, be still, be still and trust that I am at work. It's an act of trust. God, even when I'm accomplishing anything, not doing anything, not fixing anything, not producing anything, God, I trust that you care about me and my family more than I do. I care, you care about my workplace and kingdom advancing there more than I do. You care more about God, what you would like to see happen in the world than I do. And not only that, you are more competent and wise and loving than I will ever be. So I am deliberately, listen, making the decision to let go. I'm making the decision to let go. That's why love, 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 CC, what you, what you prepared us for today, surrender. God, I am letting go. What am I letting go of? I am letting go of my agenda for yours. I'm letting go of my plans for yours. I'm letting go of what I would like to see happen for what you would like to see happen. I am letting go, God, of my need to control outcomes. I am letting go. Silence. Silence. Stillness. Two frequently asked questions. One, what if things fall apart? Uh, I have good news. It will. The things that God never intended. Look at me. Things that God never intended for you, you want that sucker to fall apart. Can I get an amen? That's not God's will for you. That's not God's thing for you. God didn't give that to you. You gave that to you. And you are trying to fix and manage. You know who I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Trust me. You want that thing to fall apart because it does not have God's name on it. Somebody say amen. amen. You want that thing to fall apart if it is not what God wants for you. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders, what? Labor in vain. It's an act of grace that when you're like, I'm not doing anything about that. It's falling apart. Let it go because God's going. It needs to. Second question, what if I fall apart? I have good news for you. You know what I'm going to say? You will. Your false self. See? In silence and still silence, your false self that's addicted to affirmation, approval from people, that part of you will fall apart. The part of you that loves to control, manage outcomes, and trying to be the God small g of your life, that false self needs to fall apart. But here's the good news. It's when you fall apart that God could what? Put you back together. Trust you and me. You want your false self. Can I just ask a question? Do you want to be free? Do you want to be whole? Do you want joy that nothing can shake? Do you want clarity of purpose and direction for your life? Do you want to know that you are more than you do? Do you want to be able to live with confident joy and peace? Then do you want your false self to fall apart under the grace and mercy of God. Can I get an amen? It's an invitation, but some of us, God, I think, allows us to get to a place where we don't have a choice. Some of you are already there. I could tell when I preach how many of you are there. Because you're at a point of desperation. You, you're not there by choice. You are literally at a place where you're going, I'm not in control. Things are falling apart. I feel like I'm falling apart. It's an act of grace that you're there because here's the thing. Desperation is a great thing in the spiritual life. Can I get an amen? Because it causes you to be open to radical solutions. It causes you to finally go, I can't. God, I can't do this. So I need you to do it. Desperation is a great thing in the spiritual life because it causes you 
to go to great extent to find whatever it is that you need to be whole, and it will cause you to be open to radical solutions, including God saying, surrender. Verse 7. Sometime later, the book dro- broke, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Can I just say, this is when someone like me, Aiden the Enneagram, okay, spaz, as my wife calls me, this is when I'm going, I'm Elijah, the brook dries up, this is when I'm going, see, 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 this is what happens when you trust God and things don't work out. So I'm going to take control. So I'm going to do my will my way and my timing instead of God's will, God's way, God's timing. <sighs> I would have been like, give me a map. I'm going to go find some water. Peter, you're in the desert. You have no idea where you are. When God's timing, it's not your timing and you have the power to do something about it, whose timing will you choose? That says everything about who you ultimately trust. Let me say that again. God's timing doesn't quite meet your timing. Why am I still single? Why don't I have a job? Why am I still stuck here? Why am I da-da-da? I don't know. When God's timing is not your timing, and you have the power to do something about it, whose timing will you trust? This is what God does. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called and bring me please a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, verse 12, I don't have any bread and a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I love this. I love this. I love this. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. Picture that imagery. I'm going to come back to it. Picture that imagery. Verse 12. Uh, Verse 15, she went away and did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour had not been used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Come on, somebody. Do you know why that spoke to me? Do you know why it spoke to me? Yes, first and foremost, this is about God. That ultimately everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Ultimately points to Jesus. Jesus being the living water. Never. This, this, the imagery of, of, the, of the jar of flour and the jar of oil. Never. It ultimately points to God. But my goodness, there is an insight there that so ministered to me. And if it doesn't minister to you, too bad. Because it ministered to me. Does anybody feel used up? Anybody who've run dry? Anybody here today? Do you know why that spoke so powerfully to me outside of God? Because I think what God intended ministry to be, he intended ministry to be in such a way that we would do it as an overflow of him filling us. Let me say it this way. Here's what Paul says in, 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 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We are like clay jars in which this treasure is stored. The real power comes from God and not from us. What God ministered to me about this passage is this. I think what God wants to do is that he wants to fill us with his spirit so that we would minister out of an overflow where we don't run dry and we don't run out. Can I get an amen? 
I think that imagery of a jar, a clay jar, where the Spirit of God fills us so that what we do is out of an overflow where God continues to replenish us, replenish us, replenish us when we get away to be hidden with God so that there is power in our ministry. Church family, you cannot give what you don't have. God didn't intend for you and I and for our ministry and service to be one in which we're constantly running out and running dry. God, the Spirit, wants to make sure that he fills us. That's why I'm saying over and over again, especially in our culture and age, where justice work is almost like an idolatry. This is a time in which we recognize that we cannot give what we don't have. And if we are not nourished, nurtured, motivated, anchored in a hidden life with God, our work for God will ultimately lead to burnout. How many of us are sitting here today and we're like that jar a flower that's run out, jar of oil that's run dry. How many of us are desperately longing for a touch of God? Can I get an amen? How many of us are thirsty for a longing and a touch of God? Say, God, I'm so thirsty. God, I'm so hungry for you. I love what Henry Nouwen said, and this quote just floored me. He said, ministry is not something you do, but it's something you have to trust. Power for Jesus' ministry came from this. He is totally and utterly surrendered to the will of his Father. Why is he totally surrendered to the will of his Father? Because he is constantly listening to the voice of his Father. What is he hearing when the voice of the Father speaks? We don't have to guess. We know. Luke 3, at the moment of baptism, he hears before he's launching the ministry. The voice of the Father say what? You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus trusted that voice. Jesus just didn't hear it. He trusted that voice. And in trusting that voice, it resulted in intimacy with the Father. And that intimacy, Father, radiated to everyone he saw and touched. God intends for you and I to hear the voice of the Father say, hey, Kimmy, you're my daughter. I love you. I'm well pleased with you. And in trusting that voice, we are to encounter intimacy with the Father from which radiates the power of the Holy Spirit. Didn't Jesus say that in John 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. If you what? Remain in me, you will what? Bear much. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But in order to trust that voice, you have to do what? You have to hear that voice. And you cannot hear that voice unless <laughs> you're quiet. Do you know what happens when I'm in silent solitude? My breathing changes. I breathe more slowly and more deeply. You know what else happens when I come out of sinus solitude? I don't talk as much. Shocking, I know. I don't talk as much. Do you know why? Someone said God's first language is silence. There's something about being in silence where you go, my words are few. But you know what the most powerful thing that happens is? Can I just share with you? Is it okay? Can I share with you why it's ministry important? The way I see people changes. I don't see people through my eyes. I see people, hello somebody, through God's eyes. And it changes everything about how I respond to you. So, as it happened at the Korean grocery this past week, instead of getting irritated at the grocery checkout lady, okay, I'm, I'm going to tell you what happened, okay, instead of getting irritated, you know what sounds out to us? I begin to see her as someone worthy enough that Jesus did this for her. And it changes how I respond to you. Do you know why we change in terms of how we view people when we're in the presence of God? Because the Bible says that God is love. And when you're in the presence of God, you love love to shower over you. In the presence of God, I allow the love of God to penetrate and infiltrate every part of my being. And when I emerge from that, I breathe slower. When I emerge from that, I don't talk as much. When I emerge from that, I see you as God sees you. Not as I see you. And I change how I respond to you. 
I want to get really practical as we close today because I told you, sermons and information, unless you do it, and I want us to practice doing it. So I want to give some practical, practical things as I, as I, as I, as I, as I continue this series. But before I do, I just, want to, I just want one important reminder, and that is this. Silence and solitude is about being with God with whatever it is, wherever you are. Listen, please, please listen. Silence and solitude is being with God with whatever it is. Silence and solitude is first and foremost about being with God. Silence and solitude is wherever you're sitting, wherever you're sitting. It's about being with God. It's not about getting something from God. It's not about hearing from God, although I notice that God says a lot when I'm quiet. Silence and solitude, it's about just being with God. Isn't that the, isn't that the true of best relationships among us? Isn't the best relationship among us, CC, when you and I are friends and sometimes we just sit there for 10 minutes and we don't say anything, no words are exchanged, and yet there's a level of intimacy and friendship? Silence and solitude is about simply being with God, not necessarily get something from God with what, secondly, it's being with God with whatever it is. What do I mean? This is the biggest lesson that I've learned about silence and solitude that I need to remind you guys, and I will do it over and over and over again. Many of us never enter into this because we have this mistaken notion that somehow we need to prepare, sanitize our lives before we do it. Can anybody relate to that? So it's kind of like before I go before God, I need to make sure my relationships are ordered. I need to make sure that all my sins are forgiven. I need to make sure that, I, you know, all these other things. And for some of us, we take that even a further level. I need to make sure I respond to all the texts. My inbox is cleared. I need to make sure that the dishes are done. I need to make sure that, you know, the bathroom toilet is cleaned. But we take this approach where I need to cleanse and sanitize. But here's one of, it does one of two things. Number one, we never go to God then. We never go to God. Come on, somebody. Isn't this the reason why some of you stopped coming to church for months, maybe years? I'm talking to somebody in here who thought, I was told somewhere this lie that I needed to sanitize my life before I came to God. And God says, no, 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 you just come as you are. Can I get an Amen. When you think to yourself, I need to somehow get stuff together and then I can come, you will never go to God. God says, come as you are. The second thing that's critical about this is not will you never go to God, but you'll never experience God's love. Here's the most important thing I've learned about silence, solitude, stillness, and that is this. When I come to God just as I am, that is when I experience his unconditional love for me. Somebody say yes to that. It is when I come to God in my brokenness, in my addiction, in my self-hatred, in my self-absorption, in my all of this stuff, that love is experienced. God's love is experienced to the extent that you and I come as we are in our vulnerability, brokenness, and God loves us as we are. So silence and solitude is vital for you to encounter God's love when you come to him just as you are. Can I get an amen? So what I do, literally after that grocery incident, I went home and I sat, because I had a meeting with Ruth like in 30 minutes, I just sat in my chair and I said, I was angry, I was frustrated, I was irritated, I was all over the place. I didn't go, okay, calm down, Peter. I didn't go, okay, you gotta get those nasty thoughts out of your mind. I just simply came to God and plopped on that man chair and I said, okay, Lord, here I am, just as I am. And I sensed God going, good, just as you are. Distracted, annoyed, frustrated. Practically, we're going to do this. First and foremost, please take quick notes because I need to, one, identify, identify a time and place. I'm having coffee today with Shang, okay, a guy named Shang, okay? Can you imagine if our conversation was something like this? <laughs> Shang and I were talking. And I said, Shang, where do you want to meet? He goes, wherever. When do you want to meet? Whenever. Is that meeting going to happen? Is that meeting going to happen? No, it's not going to happen. You need to identify a time and a place. First of all, for me, a place is my study in my basement where it is not the ideal, but it is what it is, okay? When you have three active kids, is what you get, so it's my basement. Some of you, it'll be your closet. Some of you, it'll be your bathroom. Some of you, it'll be on your subway. Some of you, it'll be on your train. Some of you, it'll be in your car. Some of you, it'll be on a park. Some of you, it'll block. It could be any, some of you, it'll be in your cubicle because you don't have time to get away. And what you want to do is you want to turn that chair around so you're reminded, I'm not working now. I am giving this time to the Lord. And if you live with somebody, a roommate, tell them so that, like I tell my kids, when daddy is downstairs in his study, don't bother me. So they keep you accountable place you also need to figure out a time 
Think ahead. If you don't get a hold of your schedule, your schedule will get a hold of you. Think ahead of the day. When am I going to do it? Is it going to be in the morning before anyone wakes up? Is it going to be midday after lunch or during lunch? Is it going to be after, uh, after work? Figure out a time of the day in which you can do this and think ahead of time. Closely related to that is please, please, please manage your expectations, okay? Shoot for a modest goal. Don't be a hero. What do I mean? If you've never done this, five minutes will seem like an eternity, it will seem like an eternity. Don't go, I'm going to do 30 minutes and then do three minutes be like, I stink at this. So I'm not going to do it anymore. Shoot for a modest goal for five, even 10 minutes. Next, settle in a comfortable posture. Next, a simple prayer that opens your time with the Lord. Here are the prayers that I pray. Sometimes I just go, help. Sometimes it's, Jesus Christ, Lord, have mercy on me. Sometimes it's, I'm here. Sometimes it's breathing. I breathe in. <gasps> I can't. I breathe out. <sighs> but you can. I breathe in. <gasps> I can't. I breathe out. <sighs> but you can. A simple prayer that expresses your desire to be with him. Distractions will be normal. Don't beat yourself over distractions. All of a sudden, you'll close your eyes and you go, I have to do laundry. You'll close your eyes, you go, I have to go to Whole Foods and shop or Mariano's if you're cheap. Close your eyes, wherever, wherever. All these things will come up to mind. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Don't judge, beat yourself up for that. And distractions come. Simply acknowledge, name it. Acknowledge and name it. Saying, God, I'm distracted right now. God, that thing's coming to my mind right now. I give it to you. And whatever the time is as you close, and with the prayer of gratitude, I always end my time with the Lord's Prayer. It just helps. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But whatever prayer, whatever prayer you can offer that closes a time in which you could acknowledge gratitude for God's presence. So identify time and place. Sit in a comfortable posture. Simple prayer that expresses your need, and then close. One last thing before I actually take us to do this. Resist the urge to judge yourself and that time depending on whether you got something out of it trust that whatever the time was like and trust you guys and me man i've been doing this for like six years now trust you and me there are more days than not when i walk away going that could have been better there are more days than not when i go lord i don't know if i sensed your presence and i just hear god going peter whatever the time was like that's what it was supposed to be trust me in that here's what we're going to do today And I love, I love where we are right now. Here's what we're going to do today. Some of you are here last Sunday. Some of you are new. In your bulletins, you were given a trust envelope. Will you take that out, please? Will you take the trust envelope out? Okay? I know some of you are here last Sunday. I need you to do it again. Inside the envelope is a sheet of paper. Is a sheet of paper. Is a sheet of paper. Take out that sheet of paper. Take out that sheet of paper. As you're taking that sheet of paper out, if you could... We said this last week. Brené Brown says the trust, trust is making something you value vulnerable to another person's actions. And distrust, distrust deciding that what is important to you is not safe with this person. Here's what I want you to do before I lead us into this time. Listen, listen, please. Take that sheet of paper out. And almost all of us walked in here today with cares, concerns, worries, doubts, fears, anxieties about a number of things. If silent solitude is an act of trust, what you and I are doing right now is write whatever those things are, not just one, whatever they are, write them on that sheet of paper. And again, if you did this last week, please, I want to ask you to do it again. Write that on that sheet of paper. Everything that you could think of, write that on that sheet of paper, everything that you could think of. And as an act of trust, when you're done, put it back in the envelope and put it either aside, put it on your lap, in your Bible, hold it, something. As an act of trust that says, God, these things, for the next few minutes, I am giving it to you. I'm not fixing, not solving, 
I'm not trying to problem, I'm not thinking, I'm not actively achieving, producing. I am just simply giving it to you and I am being still and knowing that you are God and I am being still and trusting that you're fighting for me. So I'm going to give you a few more seconds to do that. I'm going to give you a few more seconds to do that. Write out. Your heavenly Father knows. Write it out, write it out, write it out. Put it in the envelope. And literally, you and I are going to exercise the discipline of letting go. We're going to set it aside, okay? And I'm going to sort of begin this time of silent solitude, and I'm going to end it. And here's, here's, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Whenever you are ready, having done that, there will be three communion service up front, me and two others. The way that we're going to end the service today, we're not going to do it corporately at the same time where I give a benediction. What we're going to do is this, because I want you, I want and I need you to take advantage of this gift. Whenever you're done, a few minutes, just simply come up. And as you take the bread and dip it in the wine, remind yourself who provides for you. Remind yourself who God is. Remind yourself who's got you. And after you take communion, you are welcomed to linger near the cross. You are welcomed to go back to your pew. You're welcome to go about the rest of the day and have a wonderful time with your dads or family. I want to give you permission and freedom to end this time today with the Lord as you feel led. So, take that thing, put it aside wherever. Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. I can't. But you can. I can. But you can. 